So demanding recognition. Um, I'm going to approach this from two different kind of fields of study. One is some of you may have heard of the work of the Gottman Institute. The Gottman Institute is a research unit at the University of Washington. And they do work around couples and predicting if they will be together longer term. And they do that by paying attention to how they respond to bids for recognition. Okay. So um, let's say as friends, Andrew Zhao and I are in a fight. Hi, we're in a fight. Um, and um, things aren't going so well, right? So I see outside that there is this most glorious cardinal. And I'm like, oh my gosh, look at the cardinal. And Andrew's just like, whatever, I'm mad at you. I'm not looking at the cardinal. Now, he doesn't tell me all that, but he doesn't come and pay attention to the cardinal. That was a bid for recognition. It wasn't just me being like, oh, a cardinal. It's that I thought the cardinal was beautiful. I wanted to share that experience with my friend, and he couldn't show up in that space. Okay, so this is one of the things that they look at is the way in which, in behavioral patterns, we either turn toward one another or we turn away from one another. So these are bids for recognition. And in their research and their work, they talk about this is like a fundamental human condition and longing that we want to be seen, right? That we want to be seen and known for who we are and valued and loved for who we are. And if you think of some of the questions we've posed today, those moments when you've been in relationships where you know someone just sees you or they get you, they appreciate your quirks, it's such a gift. I will never forget it was, um, I don't know what year, the year 2011 or something. It was a year we had a really terrible blizzard here in Minnesota and there was like 18 inches in one dump in early December. Um, and at the time, I had run out of running clothes, and I had, except for like winter running clothes, and I was going to go for a run after the roads had been plowed. And um, so I put on long johns and shorts over them to go for a run. And my long johns were like this really intense green. And um, I'd gone for my run, and I came back, and Andy was chilling inside with a mug of coffee. And, and I came inside, and I was like, babe! I'm a frog. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why I decided I was a frog, but I was. And I started riveting, okay? Um, and I started jumping on our couches. And I was like, I'm a frog. Okay. And Andy just was cracking up. And he was like, I don't know too many people who would think the 30-year-old director of admissions at Luther Seminary would be riveting around her living room like a frog. But she is. Why I tell you this story is we all have our quirks and our things, right? But I remember that story because the fact that I acted like that and that Andy looked at me, he was, his laughter was filled with love, not derision or like you're the dumbest, weirdest person I've ever met and why did I marry you? <laughs> Someone should like put you somewhere, not here, because uh, he didn't treat me like that at all. It was joy and that I could be that vulnerable and that just silly, I felt seen and I felt loved. Okay. So that's on a more individual level, our desire to be recognized and seen 
and cared for and valued as who we are. Well, there is also a field of study inside of philosophy and ethics and Christian theology um, around the idea of recognition. The biggest field of study, how this really was birthed, was in the wake of World War II and the Shoah. And it was philosophers and Christian theologians wrestling with how did this happen? How could humans perpetuate this profound act, these profound acts of violence against one another? And one of the things, <laughs> to boil down a whole discipline, uh, one of the central aspects that this field of study talks about is how when we don't cognize or see each other as human, it allows us to be inhumane toward one another, right? And this can happen in really big and smaller sorts of ways. You hear it in language, for instance, when people from the West would go to other nations and talk about the savages. Because if someone isn't as refined or as human, if they're savage, they're part animal, and then you can treat them that way. This is where language matters because it tells us something about what we think about one another. When I read this passage, it seems to me a bid for recognition is happening here. And a challenge both on an individual level, but also on a larger cultural systemic level related to how, uh, who is human, who deserves healing, who did Jesus come for? Who is God for? Right? There's big stuff that's happening in this passage. So I want to go back to the passage, and I want to talk about a few different um, pathways of interpretation that have been kind of the dominant ones. And you might have your own, which is great, and we'll have some space for that too during our Breathe Out with Andrew. Okay, so you can feel free if you want to. If you could pull that up and... Um, folks, you can follow along, you can pull it up on your phone. I want to make a few different notes about this passage. Um, the one is that this passage appears in both Matthew and in Mark. Uh, an interesting thing about the Gospels, right? it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels, and they share especially a lot of overlap of stories. So a cool thing you can do is if you are reading the Gospels, you can just Google <laughs> the passage. And Wikipedia is actually very helpful at pointing out where this passage, if it is in another one of the Gospels. I think that's interesting for a few different reasons. One is you can see the way the story's told from various vantage points, right? Like we're all going to leave a common experience this morning. <laughs> And we're all going to tell the story a little bit different about what happened in the morning because we're different people, right? Likewise, the Gospels are written by different authors. They're the stories of Jesus that are collected by them and edited to also speak to different communities. And so um, you see that happening here even in the way that the story is told here in Mark chapter, or it's Matthew chapter 15 versus the way that it's told in Mark and if you're really nerdy, you can also get your synopsis of the fourth, four Gospels book for yourself, and you can see it side by side. Um, so thank you. <laughs> um, uh, 
so this also this passage occurs in Mark 7, 24 through four, uh, 30. A couple interesting notes just about this passage. In the Matthew version, we're told here in verse 22, it happened that a Canaanite woman. Um, so in the Matthew version, the woman is referred to as a Canaanite woman. In Mark, she is referenced as, now the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. Okay. So you have some initial options right away about how you can deal with the fact that it's a resonant story, but the woman is named differently. Um, the one is you could be like, well, see, the Bible has mistakes. They just don't agree with each other. It's a problem. Um, that's... You, you can think that. I'm, I might give you some more information that would allow a different interpretation. Um, the one is, is that um, Canaanite, a Canaanite woman in the land of Cana, that was the historic, uh, there's a lot of division and conflict and fighting between the Canaanites and the Jewish people, right? And so um, here in Matthew, he's referencing this woman as being Canaanite. Syrophoenician, would be a more modern political way to talk about it. So we were talking at our table earlier. You could say someone is from Edina, which would be true right now. But if you were speaking in terms of pre the incorporation of Edina as a city, you could say we're in the, you're from the Richfield Township, right? Because that was before there was Edina and Richfield, there was the Richfield Township sort of thing. So just an understanding here is on one part, it's a political distinction of a name that's actually referring to the same sphere of person. You know, it's like, I'm from Minneapolis, I'm a Minnesotan, kind of, right? So that's part of what's going on here, is what I would argue. Um, the other thing that's happening is I think that the book of Matthew, it's being written to a specific community. The community to whom Matthew is writing is largely Jewish. And so here in the language that Matthew is using, is trying to evoke right, this historic division. She's one of the unclean people. She's our enemy. She's from this other community. In Mark, we still, it's made clear, she's not Jewish, right? She is a Greek. She's Syrophoenician. She's outside of the Jewish community. But here, it seems a good interpretation would be that Matthew's trying to make clear she's not one of us, right? She's from one of the hated outsiders. Okay, so with that... Um, as you go through the passage, right, here the woman comes, and she says, have pity on me, my daughter's horribly demon-possessed. So first of all, Jesus doesn't respond. Um, and then the disciples, they're like, get rid of her, right? Um, and, she, and then Jesus finally turns and says, basically, um, I'm not here for you. I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel, and it's not fair for me to take, you know, I'm supposed to be caring for them and I'm not supposed to give to you because this is what I'm supposed to be about. And she counters him, making a reference to her as the dog that you, um, you don't take the bread from the kids and give it to. And she says, yet, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And then Jesus answers her, oh, how great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And then her daughter is healed. Okay, so... I'm going to give you a few different interpretive options that we'll wrestle with this morning. Um, one of them that folks will say is Jesus is testing this woman's faith. He's basically like pushing at her and seeing how she responds and will she stand her ground or not. And when she says she does, he's like, you really have faith. Your daughter will be healed. Okay. 
So that's one interpretive option that folks will do. Um, another interpretive option is that Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish community, right? And in the passage right before this and around it, which is another great way to read the Gospels, is pay attention to where the story is situated because it's usually connected to something else. So the story right before it is about what makes someone clean or unclean, and that it's not what's on the outside, but what comes from within. So that's the thing that happens right before this in Matthew. And so I think a good argument and commentary um, that has occurred throughout time is that Matthew is using this story as a foil to point out to Jewish folks that the kingdom of God is more expansive than we've been led to believe, right? So this story becomes a foil to say, hey, the thing that comes from inside is what makes one clean. I'm going to tell you a story, right? Um, and so in that case, it's more of a rhetorical exercise and less about what Jesus is actually doing. The point is he's using Jesus and this woman uh, to say, hey, this isn't okay. God's kingdom is bigger. Another argument that folks will make is that Jesus, as a fully human person, um, he understands his mission to be to the Jewish folks, and he's been raised in that culture and that context, and that God uses this woman to actually open him up, and that Jesus actually was wrong, and he changed his mind. Okay? Those are the three dominant threads or strands or, or streams of interpretation. Uh, I'm not going to tell you which one you need to believe or think, um, but it's an interesting question. How, when you read this passage, how do you take it? How did you receive it? What are your own thoughts about it? And then what do we do with it based off of what you think is going on? Fundamentally here, whichever stream you find yourself in, I think it's clear a few different things in this text. Coming out again of the earlier passage in, in um, part of chapter 15, it's clear that this passage is telling us and telling the original community that exactly the thing of like, it's not all the outward things that make us accepted or clean or part of the community, but that it's who we are, it's what's within us. And so this passage in one way becomes a deep refutation and rebuttal to any of the lines and distinctions that religious people or communities would make about who is accepted or who is a part of God's kingdom, right? So that's one thing I think this passage absolutely is set up and is saying, hey, nope, everyone belongs. I think here there's also um, a beautiful challenge and invitation to how we can be in a place where we're so sure, like, hey, here's the culture I grew up in, here's the norm and the way I think it goes, and someone else can disrupt us, and God can use them to open us in a new way, to a way of being or thinking or understanding that we hadn't had before. I think about this in my own life and stories I've, you know, experiences I've had where I saw something one way, and it wasn't until I had an encounter, right, with someone else who had a different background, that all of a sudden I was able to see the world a little bit differently and it opened me up. Another powerful aspect here in this text is what this woman does and how she demands recognition. 
Here she is. She goes up to this man who's been known to be a rabbi, a teacher, and a healer. And she's like, no, I, I know you heal. I'm expecting my daughter to get healed. And even though she is being treated horribly, the disciples are like, get rid of her. Jesus is ignoring her. She's like, I will not put up with this. And I think about the beauty and the power of what happens when even as the first song from Bob Marley, when we've seen the light, uh, like Martin Luther back in the day when he says, here I stand, I can do no other. When we come to those places of certainty and clarity about our own humanity and we refuse to be treated any differently. In so many ways, this woman is demanding recognition. And in that, whether Jesus' mind is changed, whether he's opened up in a new way, whether it's a foil that's supposed to change our minds <laughs> about the people that we think are on the outside, and or whether this is a text in which Jesus is pushing at some stuff and kind of maybe playing with the disciples too. Whatever is going on here, it's definitely a word about that recognition and being cognized and seen as fully human is part of the work of the gospel. I think about that then in our time. What does it mean and call to us both individually in terms of knowing that we are seen and recognized, that we can change and evolve and be seen? And also what it means for us collectively as church to be challenged to be a people in a world where recognition and humanity is denied. To be a people who say, oh wait, we've missed that the mission of God is not small. That no one is a dog. What do you think about the evolution of racial overtones of that in our world, right? Like no one is a dog, everyone is a child of God. And so what does this passage evoke and challenge and stir up for us to be a people who are always called to be on the side of more recognition and more honoring of the humanity and dignity of all people? So my hope and prayer is that if there are ways because of your own story and life that either you haven't been seen you weren't seen and honored, you've learned to hide, that this passage might invite you more deeply to demand recognition yourself, whether you rib it like a frog <laughs> or something else that's your unique quirk, whatever that is. But then also that we would be a people who stand deeply and with commitment of our lives to ensuring that there is more good news where everyone is recognized and cognized and honored for what they see out the window and that we turn toward one another and in so doing we turn toward the love of God.